venture capital was too over-glamorized and I wish people could just take a step back and focus on serving customers over investors. Welcome back to Series 10 of 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today's mentor is someone many of you will have come across as a leading voice for DE&I across Europe and one of the most requested guests we've ever had in recent times. It's Andy Aim MBE. Andy's angel training programs have empowered over 350 new angels, including the Black Angel Group spun out of Google's Black Network, which has invested over $2 million in just two years. As an angel himself, Andy's invested in over 17 startups, including Patch and Unplugged, whose founders are 40-Minute Mentor alumni. Importantly, 70% of the startups he's backed are led by women and or founders from diverse backgrounds. I am really flattered that Andy's agreed to come on our podcast. He is somebody who we have a lot of mutual friends and connections, and he is just always has the most amazing reputation. And so it's been a long time coming, and I can't wait to share his mentorship on angel investing and the future of DE&I in tech with you all. So Andy, welcome finally to 40 Minute Mental. How are you? I'm so good to be here. Honestly, I'm a big fan of the show, like I mentioned to you before. So it's an honor to be on the other side. Ah, oh, no, the honor really is all mine. Um, well, you'll know, because I know you've listened to a few of these. We're going to warm you up with a few quick fire questions just to get you going. So please finish the following sentences after me. First up, I grew up wanting to be... As a teenager, probably a, a motivational speaker, and it sounds really odd, but I was reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Think and Grow Rich, and it was just really expanding my mind. So I always like loved like learning about the Zig Ziglars and Anthony Robbins and, and just what they did to help me and others along that journey. And I guess what I'm doing today is not too dissimilar, to be fair. Inspirational teaching in a different way. A lot of people that answer that question, that what they want to be when they're a kid with what they are now is so vastly different. But with you, I'd say there's a lot of similarities there. So that's awesome. Second question. The last time I was scared was when? Probably when I, when I became a dad. I think there's a lot of things that go through your mind, isn't it? When you become a new parent for the first time and... All that kept going through my mind is that I don't want to be an absent father. I want to be present. I love my career, but I love my family. I don't want to let them down. And touch wood, six years into the journey, I'm still here. Love that, yeah. I'll admit, I was... I'm not even just going to say scared. I was terrified of becoming a dad. I think it was because it was slightly earlier than maybe expected. It's been the best thing that's ever happened to me, for sure. But very similar to you. I think I just... You want to be the best for your kids and especially in this crazy world of entrepreneurship, I guess I was probably a little bit scared about, could I give everything and run the business and do all those things? And you quickly realize it comes above everything else, doesn't it? So the most memorable day in my career was? Funny enough, today is a really memorable day for me because this morning I watched a TV advert that I featured in with my daughter in one of our portfolio companies, Ruka Hair. And she's watching the advert and I'm watching her watch it. And she says she's nervous and proud. And at the end of it, I thought, how empowering is that for her to feel like I've got all these beautiful black women in this advert with me and I'm in there too. And look at what I can become in terms of aspirations in the future. So we had quite a moment this morning together. And I just thought of the significance of that for her. 
And all I could think about is, wow, that's such, it's such an amazing experience to share with her. That is beautiful. And I remember seeing something online today about it going live on ITV. My biggest failure to date is? Probably not backing myself sooner. I think, you know, when you're going through that journey of I've just gone to university, I'm getting into my first career, supporting the family and whatnot, it takes a lot of courage to shake off that imposter syndrome and to back yourself as, as an entrepreneur and to think to yourself, like, I want to earn, earn money myself. I'm going to schedule my own diary. I'm going to manage my own time and I'm going to earn work and then win work. I think that can be quite a, quite a chasm for a lot of people to go from corporate working for a company to actually working for yourself. So true. I feel like there's just some incredible people with incredible ideas that has got in the way of them taking that leap of faith. And I guess that's one of the reasons we have the podcast is to share stories of people that have stepped out of the the day-to-day corporate world or whatever it might be and sort of pursued those dreams. It's funny though, I, I started JBM quite early, but I also, I feel that this thing a lot myself still today, I'm like, oh, why did I question doing X, Y, and Z? Why didn't I just back myself? Because I've proved I can do it. But then it's still, you have to kind of keep checking yourself on it, don't you? It's something that doesn't always go away, particularly when you're in a room with super smart, amazing people and you start those kind of gremlins in your head start going off again. So I'm really glad you said that. I feel like that could be just what people need to hear today. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be... Venture capital was too over-glamorized and I wish people could just take a step back and focus on serving customers over investors. Love that. Wise words. I'm sure we're going to get deeper on some of these things later, but thank you, Andy. It's, I feel like there's so much to talk about. I've got so many questions for you. So this is going to be quite tricky for me. I'm going to try and distill this into like something that really works, but we might have to do a round two. But I want to start at the beginning. Let's start there because it feels like that's a good place to start. Before we get into your career, tell me a bit about the backstory of Andy Aim. What was your upbringing like? How would you say that your upbringing shaped your career and also your passion for entrepreneurship? I grew up in Tottenham, North London, British-born Ghanaian. So my parents migrated from Ghana to the UK. And the whole ethos growing up was, you know, we've sacrificed the life that we knew for a life that you could possibly have with you and your brothers here in, in the UK. So from a young age, I was very aware of like, I guess, I've got an opportunity here. I don't want to fumble it. I don't want to take the piss. I want to make the most of, of the fact that we're growing up here. I felt that privilege from a young age. And growing up in Tottenham, North London was really fascinating because it's a multicultural melting pot. You've got people from all different nationalities. It's actually one of the most multicultural wars in the whole of Europe. And I mean, like Bangladeshi friends, Scottish friends, Irish friends, Chinese friends, Jamaican friends. Like, so diversity and inclusion wasn't really a term because it was just a way of living. And it definitely felt like two worlds collided when I went into the world of work. And suddenly I was like a a minority and I was very aware of a difference that I wasn't aware of in this world. And I always say to share with my friends that I was always fascinated with like black culture, technology and businesses. And at a young age, my dad spoke to our local shopkeeper and asked him to order the FT for us as a family. And in Tottenham, they didn't have the FT in the corner stores because, of course, the demographic and readership of that newspaper typically wasn't someone from, from these kind of areas. So that corner store like, was very kind in ordering this regular fulfillment of just one newspaper for our family. And this is, of course, pre-subscription on the internet. And my brothers and I used to be fascinated reading about stocks and shares we didn't understand wealthy lifestyles in Chelsea and Kensington and these flower shows. And it expanded our minds beyond where we lived. 
I think it's something really powerful when you're a young person and you have these experiences, whether through reading books, whether actually traveling and feeling like, like my mind has been and my horizons have been broadened. And that's what reading this paper did for me. It raised my aspirations because it made me think about being so much more. And I think one thing my dad did that was really smart growing up is he was a cab driver and he used to tell us stories about a lot of his clients in his cab. And then he got us work experience with some of these clients. So I ended up going to um, an architect in Finchley. As a black young man growing up, it was probably the first white family that really, I felt, loved me. Like they'd make me lunch, they'd embrace me, I'd work from home with them, go along with them to client sites. One of them was a transcriber for the BBC. The other person was an architect. And again, it reframed for me like what I could become and who I could become in the world. Because they were very wealthy, but very humble. And I think looking back now at a lot of how I show up in the world and how my most authentic self, it came from experiences like that. Love that. It's amazing how these little things can totally open your mind to things and opportunities and then shape that kind of future direction. It also really, um, what you said really resonated with me because I, I was very lucky to go to this melting pot of a school. Some of my best mates, uh, one, ironically, Quobs from Tottenham, a probably similar age to us. And one South Korean, born in, uh, like grew up in New Malden, Swats, English guy. It was just this beautiful melting pot. And because everyone had come from these very different backgrounds, very different upbringings, it always left a massive impression on me. And I always find it very strange when others, when I went to university and others hadn't had that. And I think it's so important, isn't it? That we have such a diverse culture in England. Like one should embrace that, not use it to a, as a divisive thing. I think it's the most incredible thing. Anyway, that's another topic. And we'll come back to talk a bit more about diversity and inclusion because I know it's a topic you're, you're passionate about. But coming on to the career then, so you've actually had a really eclectic career, which I, I love. Being a co-founder of Mixtape Madness, you've worked in product, in hyper-growth scale-ups, and now you're an angel investor and educator. So do you mind just telling our audience a little bit about some of those moves and how they came about and what ultimately set you on this path to start the angel investing school? I think it's a great topic to talk about kind of like career advice that we wish we gave ourselves when we were younger. And I was never someone to set goals across my career to say, I want to be promoted to become a partner. I want to work within this industry. I always focused centrally on feeding my curiosity. And where that came from was when I was 21, I did a work experience as part of a placement course at university. I went to Brunel. And during this placement course, I managed to like get a job for a year in a company called ICAP, which is an interdealer brokerage, which is essentially like a stockbroker between the investment banks. And the one thing that stood out to me wasn't what I was doing on my day job, but it was the people I met and the stories that they told about traveling. So I became so curious. I said, when I left that job, I'm going to South America for three months to backpack. James, on paper, no one in my family had ever traveled to Latin America. And I mean like my dad, my dad's dad, my dad's dad's dad. Like no one in my lineage had been to South America. Secondly, I couldn't speak Spanish or Portuguese. So it was very illogical. This is very entrepreneurial, right? It's very illogical. It didn't make sense on paper. And thirdly, my friends were saying, Andy, that's not the black thing to do. You're going to get killed. You don't know anyone there. You don't know what you're doing. There was probably a sliver of truth to that. Looking back, that was one of the most formative and pivotal experiences I had in my life. And it came from feeding my curiosity. So after that experience, I knew that I just needed to keep doubling down on feeding my curiosity and it will lead to my biggest growth experiences in terms of learning. And looking back, it's been true. So starting businesses like Mixtape Madness is all about scratching our own itch, 
We love the UK urban and grime music. There was no central location online, pre-Spotify and Apple Music to listen to this music. So we created our own platform to do so. Becoming a product manager was me scratching my own itch again. I traveled to San Francisco on a consulting project, had this experience working with venture capitalists like Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, Lightspeed Ventures, and Greylock Partners. And through that curiosity, it was like a fast-track MBA. It led me into my career as a product manager. Again, scratching my own itch, learning about the lack of diversity when it comes to the allocation of venture capital to founders enabled me to start creating content, speaking at events, and eventually led me to being headhunted to a VC firm called Backstage Capital, which was all about investing into underrepresented founders with other guests like uh, Andy Davis, who have been on the show. And that curiosity led me then to this problem around the friends and family rounds. Like, what do founders do when they don't have wealthy friends or family to raise that initial round of investment? Does it mean that they don't have the opportunity to even give this a shot? I just felt that was wrong. And that's why I started the Angel Investing School to help to solve that problem. So you can see a, a golden thread almost of, of where curiosity has led me to. And where will I be in five years? I have no idea. But I'm very excited about almost like empowering this next generation of family offices for people like you and I. That's the direction it looks like I'm going in. I love it. And I think back in the day, I reckon at school you would have been taught like curiosity is a bad thing. Like, you know, just follow the rules. Do, you know, this is like, I mean, decades ago, but curiosity sometimes for me, it's the most incredible thing. And I think it's one of the most consistent traits of people that have come on this podcast is that curiosity, but that's curiosity to fix a problem that's driving them mad and build something that's going to to kind of disrupt something or whether it's curiosity to continually learn you've got that in spades and i'm not worried about the next five years like you'll just continually iterate on new things that kind of you're passionate about or you see things that need to be solved and i absolutely love it it's a good segue into talking about the angel investing school i know a lot of people will have listened to this i know louise one of my colleagues is signed up and been through it and you know raved about it but for anyone that hasn't heard of it before do you mind just telling us a bit about the origin story and what people can expect if they they're listening to this super curious and want to sign up my primary goal is to empower entrepreneurial professionals from different backgrounds to recognize that they can invest as little as one thousand pounds into startups and get started i made the mistake seven years ago of investing more than I can afford into a startup I didn't understand. And I want to help people to avoid making the mistakes that I did. And often when I encounter people and I teach them about angel investing or they're curious about startups, they have three challenges that's often blocking them. They believe that they can't afford to invest. They believe they can't add value to entrepreneurs. And they believe that people like us don't do things like this. So when we talk about the empowerment and the community and the confidence I think that's even more important than actually like the tactical, theoretical things that we actually teach. Because what I've realized when doing this teaching is that so many people are suffering from a lack of knowing who they are and what their worth is. So they downplay it and restrict it to a job role. Oh, because I've been working in Google and marketing for the last five years, I'm a marketer. That's really just one aspect of who you are. But when you tap into your lived experience, you can add so much more value to that. And it's classic when we're supporting founders. At the beginning of this show, I mentioned that I was in an advert with a founder that's adding value and supporting a founder. A founder can ask me about, you know, what does remote working look like? And it's so challenging. And do you have any experience here? I actually have worked in a few companies remote, big and small. Here are some things that worked for me over email. It's not a meeting. It's really helpful. And we overemphasize and assume that adding value is really difficult. It's something that we cannot do. And all of us can possess the value to add value if we really understand the value that we can add. 
And a lot of that is really about listening and understanding someone's problems, paying attention to it, being a good listener and being helpful if you can. If you can't, making an introduction to someone who can maybe help. And it sounds really simple because it is, but we often make really, really bad financial decisions and mistakes with our money, but we don't fully understand what we're investing into. And that's the kind of journey that we take students on when they join the Angel Investing School. It's awesome. I have a feeling at the end of this episode, you're going to have a lot of a lot of emails and requests to sign up because you know, what you just said is fundamental and so many of us get in our own way, don't they, with, with some of these things. So I really want to make sure people can come away from this with a really clear view of who should get involved. So, so let's start there. Who do you think is best suited to sign up? And for anyone maybe on the other side of things, like how does what you do benefit founders? Great questions. I'll answer them separately. So I think the first type of person who really suits the Engine Investor School is someone who's really growth-minded, who wants to make that first investment into themselves. They recognize that they want the knowledge, the understanding and the community in order to make more informed investment decisions. Secondly, is someone who's actually an entrepreneurial professional. So either an entrepreneur who's maybe grew a company, maybe sold it or doing really well within their business, but that business has never had angel investing or venture capitalist support. That's actually the majority of businesses in the UK that people don't realize, right? So there's many manufacturing entrepreneurs that I've met, supply chain entrepreneurs, bakers who are doing really well and have just never been exposed to this world, but are really interested in this third thing, which is they want to add value beyond capital. They want to invest back into their community, back into maybe female founders, back into maybe diverse founders, back into a subject matter they're interested in, like Web3 or AI. And they want to be actively participating in that investment. I think that's what separates angel investing from just stocks or shares or property investing. The active involvement you can take in supporting a founder. The reason that is really helpful for founders is because angel investing is really a fragmented market. Unlike VCs, angel investors don't actually always have it in their LinkedIn or have a website to say that we have 1 million available to invest. In fact, you don't know when they're in or out the money. They could have, you know, just had a child. They could be running a business themselves and suffering from the changes in the market. They could be someone who maybe has experienced layoffs at work and therefore are no longer investing right now. It's difficult to understand the context. So really founders value the efficiency that they have from someone like the angel investing school where... You know, I look at a company like Avery Estelle last year, we brought in nine investors together to collectively invest 150000 into that round. That's an amazing opportunity. We're leveraging platforms, these special purpose vehicles, to club together small tickets like £5,000 with bigger tickets of £50,000 into the same deal in a really efficient way. But a founder only has to deal with one relationship with the lead of that syndicate, people like myself. So for founders, they love that they're getting that value where they're speaking to myself or one member of the Angel Investing School alumni, and it's going out to 400 potential angels who can get into their rounds. All of our angels, we're trying to train them to really form human relationships with these founders. There's no higher, there's no less than, there's no hierarchy. It's a really flat structure. If anything, actually, the founders like creating all of the value. So how can we be the biggest cheerleaders and supporters of these founders along this journey? And a lot of that starts actually with even mentoring on programs like accelerator programs, not even investing a dime, but getting into the habit of what it means to support a founder along that journey and how much you can learn and gain, even if you don't make a financial return. And that's the kind of expectations we set for founders as well as angels who who start on this journey with us. I absolutely love it. I mean, I've seen a real trend in the last couple of years of 
founders, operators, friends, like starting to get into angel investing. And I know you've been at the forefront of kind of this movement to kind of get more people thinking about it and get more people involved. Why would you say that now is a really good time to become an angel? I think it would maybe help our listeners just to understand a bit about how you first made that plunge and what did you do to get up to speed when you first started angel investing? Now is a great time for two reasons. The first is because a lot of people don't realize that the biggest driver of wealth creation is ownership in business, either as a founder, an early employee, or an investor. So when we look at the Forbes rich list every year, we're noticing there's more and more entrepreneurs who are investing, more and more athletes who are investing, even successful entrepreneurs that people look up to today, Elon Musk and the rest, they're all investors. Why are they investing in these new businesses? Because actually when these new businesses rise in value, that's when your actual wealth is rising in value too. So I'm actually trying to create more access and understanding of how you can participate in that even if you don't have an, an idea as an entrepreneur yourself to own your own business and drive that value. The second reason why now is really timely is because there's an education gap. Technology has made it really easy to invest into a business. So for example, we have a blog post on the Angel Investor School where one of our members invested 500 pounds into CityMapper on an equity crowdfunding platform. They received 300 pounds when CityMapper got sold. Why did that happen? What are liquidation preferences? What is valuation and why does it matter? These are the kind of things that we're teaching people up front so you can make informed decisions on what you're doing. The second technological revolution has been a special purpose vehicles. And these platforms that have been created like AngelList, Valben, and Odin that make it easier than before to invest as little as a thousand pounds into a startup. The hard thing is gaining access to those deals. And that's where networks and communities like the Angel Investment School makes that more accessible. When I look back at when I started seven years ago, I made a terrible mistake because I invested more money than I could afford to lose into a startup I didn't understand. It was actually a startup based in Africa. And I was really biased because I'm like, I'm from Ghana, contributing back to the continent. What an amazing opportunity. I had emails in 2014 of me emailing two lawyers in my network. One was my cousin and one was a good friend of mine. I asked them about this opportunity. They both told me not to invest in it because I don't understand the deal. And I ignored them because I was so passionate and leading with my, my heart and not my head when it should be a combination of both. So I ended up investing alongside my brother. And within six months, it was very clear that there was working capital challenges. And the startup was struggling to get payment from their corporate clients in time and ran out of money and therefore had to close down the business. It was a painful lesson that could be learned for a lot cheaper than the four figs I spent which is why I feel like our course is a really cheap and easy way to learn those lessons rather than making a bad investment. And that's what led me from my bad investment through to what I do today. Amazing. Look, I can relate to that so much. I mean, the, the number, and it's not like huge sums of money in the scheme of things, but for me, the number of like few hundred pounds here or there over a period of two, three years that I've invested in mainly makes businesses, you want to show some support that I had no idea. I had done no due diligence other than oh, I really want to help. And then I don't think my wife was particularly pleased. I know I need to sign up, but I genuinely really enjoy the process of helping. And like, I love startups. I love helping founders. I know what it's like to be one. I know the pressures that come. And I know how useful it can be to have great people invested in your success. But I also, as you said earlier, like I've realized now probably the, the way that I can add more value is when it comes to talking about talent and culture and 
those sorts of things in the short term before I've actually invested in, you know, learning how to do investing properly. I'm committed to this now, Andy. I will be signing up. Just got to work out when the best time to do it is because I really want to learn for myself. What you just described, it was so organic and it's classic, like entrepreneur archetype that we serve. I would love to do the course, but I haven't got time. And it's because of that that we actually launched our membership so we have a membership with pre-recorded masterclasses and Q&A calls once a month because we understand there's busy professionals who haven't got the time to dedicate every Wednesday, which is required on a live course. So I'm happy that you dovetailed and allowed me to share that, actually. That's exactly what inspired our membership. I think there is this perception, and you talked about this earlier, about you need loads of cash, like loads of capital to be an agent investor, which is clearly not the case, and you're proving this. So... Can you just talk to that point particularly? And like, how much capital do you need to get going? Yeah, so the smallest amount that I've ever invested into a startup is £1,300. And I did it by joining a group of angels known as an angel syndicate. And the angel syndicate that I joined was the Green Angel Syndicate. And they invest into startups that are in the fight against climate change. There's two things that are really important to notice there. One is I get access to deal flow that I wouldn't traditionally get access to, which are startups that are fighting against climate change. The second thing is I have no background in climate change. So I can surround myself with experts that I can trust to assess these deals and help me make an informed decision of investing into these deals. My value add isn't going to be my expertise in climate change. It's my expertise in product management in fundraising, in building culture. And that's what I can lean into while I can trust on the group and learn from the group who bring their other skills to play. So I'm a big advocate of angel groups and angel syndicates because it allows you to accelerate your learning and to de-risk your investment by investing alongside others. So I'm a big fan of that. And that's how I made my smallest investment and how others can too. Love it. And it is obviously, there is risk involved, of course. So for anyone that's new to this, like what returns can you expect from initial investments? How should you frame that side of things? Because it is obviously a bit daunting if you're making investment decisions and you've not really done it many times before. Absolutely. So I think the mind frame you have to go into it is, is knowing two things. One, worst case scenario, if I lost my money, can I afford to lose that money? Secondly, Worst case scenario, if I don't make any money, am I comfortable with the learnings and the value that I gain from the network and X, Y, Z of going along this journey with these fascinating people? If I can't afford to lose that money, if I'm not comfortable with that downside of those other benefits, then this isn't the right journey for me. And I should be honest with myself before starting on this journey. The third kind of bonus tidbit I'd say is you want to have a portfolio mindset to say, rather than I've just saved up £10,000 and I'm going to put it to work by investing into a startup, instead think, I've just saved up £10,000 to invest into startups. I'm going to invest £1,000 into 10 startups. I'm going to build a portfolio. I'm going to de-risk myself. I know that 60% of startups probably fail to make a return. So I'm going to count for that by spreading my risk and having more bets. It's also going to allow me to understand what I like to invest in. What's my investment thesis? How much do I like to invest? into what geographies, what sectors, what type of business models. I always say that people don't really shape their investment thesis looking forward, but rather looking backwards. So after you've done a number of deals, it allows you to look back and look at the patterns and trends to understand exactly what you invest in. So I've noticed with myself that I love to invest into direct-to-consumer companies, businesses that are selling direct to customers. And a lot of those companies actually are really capital efficient. They're cash efficient. They don't need to raise several rounds of funding which I love 
because it means that actually I'm not going to be sitting underneath these terms from VCs called liquidation preferences, which may mean that I fail to make a return, which I love because it means they have high ownership and high incentive to build a business, which I love because although it doesn't work for a VC, is that startup sells for 50 million or 150 million. It's a great outcome that's life-changing for the founder. It's a great return for me as an angel. So I found my sweet spot, but it took me a number of deals to get to this point. And the reason I mentioned that is because you have to have that growth mindset of being a continuous learner. Are you willing to go on this journey of continuously learning about yourself as well as the startups that you're investing in? And I think that takes a humility as well. 100%. When you are looking at angel investing deals, what is your process in terms of how you assess them? Because clearly there's risk. And absolutely, you just talked very sensibly there. I could see about how you, spreading your risk is it makes sense, especially if you're new to it. But are there particular things that you're looking for in founders or business models that we can, can sort of help educate our listeners on? Absolutely. So typically, when I'm even screening pitch decks, we've got this process called looking at the vehicle and the journey. And if it doesn't pass the vehicle and the MOT, just it's no point looking at the journey. And when we talk about the vehicle, we're talking about looking at the founding team, where the majority of the decision is being made, and I'll explain why in a second, looking at the product and the customers that it serves, and understanding actually like the kind of plan or what journey this startup wants to go on, the roadmap, the vision for the future. Let's start with the founding team. The reason that's the most significant thing to really understand is because you're actually investing in unlocking potential. At this stage, it's typically at an idea stage or early traction, which means I've just released a product in the market. We're just getting our first customers. So there's not a lot of data points to go on. There's no historical accounting. There's no two years of accounts where you get like an annual report like you do of a publicly listed company. It's so early, there's a lack of data points. So you really need to understand that founding team and understand whether you believe in backing them and the potential of what they want to become. The second point to that is, if you're someone like me who likes to add value, who likes to be available, who likes to support, you need to have that balance of understanding whether they're willing to take on the support and whether they're coachable. Like, are they good at taking on that feedback? Are they willing to take on your support? Or actually, no. And if not, they're not right for me, even though they may grow into great things. Because I want to be involved in that way in being supportive. The third is that actually checking yourself, you need to understand that you need to stay out of their way. And that might sound ironic to what I just said. But you don't want to be taking up founder time, doing reporting, admin, replying to a thousand emails because you're becoming actually really, really a burden. That founder time should be spent on their employees and their colleagues, on their customers, and in growing their business. The more time they're spending with you or fundraising takes them away from the product, the customers, and the employees, which is where they should be spending their time. When we think about the product and the customer, I think my product management like background comes into play here. I need to hear stories about customers that they're serving and why. If you can't tell me stories about what problem you're solving and for what customers and literally reference them by names, then you're not intimately enough with your customers. The unique thing about starting a business is it's at such a small scale, you can actually spend time in getting to know your customers deeply because I want to be convinced that you're solving a big and frequent problem for these customers and you can talk about this problem all day long. And there's certain metrics that are associated to certain business models that if I don't understand, I can't invest. So what is your North Star metric and why? What is the key thing that you're trying to move and why are you trying to move that thing? If you give me something generic like monthly active users, you don't understand your, your application. Even if I look at a startup like Pinterest, their goal isn't just weekly active users. There's a certain activity they're trying to drive and it's called pins. 
So the key thing to try to drive is actually how many people are pinning every day and every week. Because if you're pinning, you're engaged in our app. And if you're creating content, if you're creating content, I can sell ads off the back of that and that drives our business model. If I can't explain my own business in that terms, I don't really understand what I'm doing. And then the third thing is that roadmap. How much are you raising and what are you using those funds for? If you can't articulate the key things you're using it for, such as hiring key people into the team, product development, because we're looking to launch these two features, because they're based off the problems that our customers have shared with us that we're not solving for today. If I can't share that with you, then I don't really understand where I'm trying to go with this. And it's okay to not fully understand where I'm going, but I have to have some logic and some some experiments that I'm putting out into the marketplace, our time box, to help me figure out what that path looks like so that I can get to this moment called product market fit, where actually I'm getting so much demand, I need to figure out how I can raise money to, to meet that demand and grow even further. This is like gold dust, Andy. Thank you so much. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this just like furiously tapping on their notepads and, and, and scribbling away. Honestly, such good stuff. Thank you so much for, for sharing your advice there. In the startup world, it's dominated by big raise announcements, unicorns, decacorns, you know, all this sort of stuff, which wrongly, to some extent, I think promotes this concept that success is linked to just how much money you raise. It's clearly not the case. And I'm a bootstrap founder. You're a bootstrap founder. I think, you know, there's lots of benefits from not raising, but then also you're an angel investor that promotes the value of investing. So as someone that's got kind of interesting lens on both of those things, and particularly for any founders that are listening to decide what path to go down, what's your advice? And just to add to that, I'd also love your take on if a founder is, is maybe bootstrapped currently, but they're thinking now is the time to invest. How should they decide between VCs or angels? Like, I just want to make sure we give some great nuggets for anyone that's in a quandary at the moment. So great Eastern philosophy, Taoism says that there's many streams that lead to the ocean. The same is true for entrepreneurship. Before even thinking about fundraising, I think founders need to spend time thinking about themselves and their aspirations. What am I trying to build here? What is the lifestyle that sits behind this business that I'm trying to build? Is it that I'm a busy parent and I want to be there for my family and I want to build a business that's big enough to support us, but I actually can serve the problem that I want to, but I want to build it patiently. If so, then venture capital and raising from VCs isn't the right route for you. Am I trying to build something globally ambitious? where I can serve people across the world and I want to grow it and grow it and put all of my effort into it and grow it as aggressively as I can and adopt that growth strategy when I take on VC funding, then maybe that is the path for you. The reason I say that is because 90% of founders I speak to when I do workshops and accelerator programs don't understand the economics of a venture capital organization. And a VC is essentially a money manager. They're an organization set up to raise funds from other institutions like pension funds, endowment funds, and family offices, in the promise and hope that they can return 3x or more of their capital back. So they could raise a 100 million pound fund in the hope to return 300 million back. So if they invest in your startup and get even 5% equity, which gets diluted over two or three rounds of funding to maybe two or 3% equity, realistically, they need you to be valued at around 4 billion or more for them to make that 3x back for their investors. If your aspiration doesn't match up with that, you don't want to inherit that growth strategy, which is what you inherit when you take money from them. There's nothing wrong with that path if you're aware of it and it aligns with your ambitions. If you want that lifestyle like I do, where I can take my child to school, pick them up, patiently build my business, build a small lean team and build it in a way that I know how, 
them bootstrapping or gaining one round of investment from angel investors and people in my network is the right path for me to go down. The second thing I really want to demystify is that you can raise angel investment and not raise VC investment. The two are not synonymous. In the same way that you could raise from a private equity firm and never raise VC investment, they're different organizations that have different incentives. The same is true for angels. Every angel is an individual and they're going to have their needs and things that matter to them and things that they're investing in. So if you connect with certain individuals that want to buy into a stake of who you're building and align with how you're trying to build that business, there's nothing wrong with taking that angel investment. I think that people commonly think that angel investors are looking for the same things as VCs and that's not necessarily true. So it's really important to understand where am I getting capital from? What's the cost of that capital? And what's the incentives that come with that capital that I take onto this business? Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you doing some demystifying there because I, I think it, sometimes we can be a bit binary about these things, but actually there's a lot there that you shared that I hope will be super helpful for anyone sort of thinking this through right now. I wanted to, before we get to an end, I honestly feel we could talk forever, but I, I'm going to try and wrap this up soon because I'm conscious how busy you are. And I do want to talk about diversity, equity and inclusion because firstly, and huge congratulations again on your very well-deserved MBE and recognition for all the amazing work you've contributed to the diversity and, and tech agenda in, in the UK. So yeah, very well done. I'd love to, of course, hear what that means to you, because that is something that is, you know, once in a lifetime and doesn't happen to many of us. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But also, given your passion for this space and given how much work there is still to be done, what are your observations in terms of how this sort of ecosystem has evolved from a DE&I perspective? And where are there still big gaps that need to be plugged? Because you're a shining light in this space. And I feel like we should, for those that don't know about the work you do and the the importance of change. I think it's important for you to share your thoughts on it. Firstly, on, on the MBE, it was a very proud moment for my family because, again, it is a, a moment that my wife could witness, my daughter could witness. I've got a son, he's six months old now. He's, he wasn't here at the time. But it's a proud moment to be able to share with my family to say, you know, even when I think, think about my parents and their, their relatives, to say, you know, they came to this country to look for opportunity for their children and look at the return on that investment in a really positive way to say that it was worthwhile and worth the time. So it was a proud moment in that respect. And I think for a lot of people, if you can't see it, you can't believe it. So when people see me in this space being elevated, it creates space for them to believe that they can enter into this space too and that they belong. And that's super important for me because I didn't feel the same way when I was entering into this industry, which is why the work that I do is, for me personally, so important and mission-focused. In terms of DE&I, I think the core of what people need to understand is that we have so much innovation being shaped for the world by a narrow set of people. And we need things like AI, for example, to be shaped by people everywhere so that it's representative in the problems it solves for society everywhere. At its simplest kind of definition, we need to understand that. You know, if we look at even products like ChatGPT, which is all the rage right now, one of the things that are scary is that still there's a narrow set of contributors who have engineered, coded, and built ChatGPT. And then they're allowing for anyone to just write these queries in. They could be putting like feature modifications in to say, actually, if you're from the UK and London, do you know what? We're going to restrict you to 10 queries a week. But if you're a lady in the Philippines or in Bangladesh, you have unlimited queries because we want to learn from you so we can solve more of your problems too, rather than excuse this Western picture that we have of the world. The same is true for innovations like Uber. Not many people know, but Uber launched with a really luxury service Mercedes-Benz in San Francisco doing pickups and the traction wasn't getting off the ground. 
And it's because a lot of the engineers across the table were white middle-class men solving for their solution of the experience that they wanted from Uber. It was only when they started doing customer testing across different demographics, like in the Tenderloin and the more deprived parts in Oakland, did they realize that the magic moment was to allow for accessibility, any taxi, anywhere to pick up someone. And that became the magic moment where they created UberX. And that's how they got attraction to grow to where they are today. There's value in products when we actually design for inclusion and take other people's considerations into consideration when designing products. And that's why it's so important, actually, that we get the right people around the table as founders, but also investors who are making decisions on who to allocate capital to. It's okay to be an investor that's not from this background. It's not okay to be willing to do the homework to find out if I don't have this problem, do others have this problem so that it is actually an investable opportunity, even though I couldn't relate to it at first. I think that's where we're falling down at the moment in society. There's a lot of investors that are leaning onto their own network and their own lived experience and dismissing the user research that's actually required to understand if something's an investable opportunity beyond themselves. And that's where we need to get to, I think, in the investor landscape. I think who can really drive the most difference are limited partners, the people that are actually investing into VC funds, because they have the most voting rights, the most influence over what those funds are doing. So we don't have that discussion enough, actually, but that's where the most influence comes from, shareholder value, and those that are investing into these funds. Very wise words. Thank you, Andy. Uh, really important points there. And yeah, the chat GPT, you know, this is, is all the rage, but actually there's some reasons to be fearful again of that. Not in that we shouldn't fear technology, but we also need to make sure it is representative of society as a whole. You can really see that going a, in a different direction. Before we come to our wrap-up questions, your investment, your portfolio is incredibly diverse, which is amazing to see and makes a lot of sense. But we do know that underrepresented founders, female founders are not getting the access to capital that they should and deserve. And there's a lot of great people. We talked about Andy Davis and there's so many people out there doing proactively doing a lot of great work to change that. But for anyone that's listening to this, do you just have any advice that if they're struggling with fundraising at the moment, is there any just little things you would say to them in terms of words of encouragement? Yeah, I'll definitely say less is more. So rather than a scattergun approach of trying to, you know, contact a hundred of 300 investors, I'd rather focus on personalized messages to your top 20 with rationale as to why you've picked them. I've seen that they've invested in my sector I've seen that they were spoken on this podcast and released this blog about this insight, which I actually disagree with. And this is why. And actually, I want to engage. I think the biggest mistake founders make is that they start too late. They need to focus on relationships over transactions. How can I start forming relationships long before I need to fundraise? So I understand what they invest in. I understand what states I have this conversation with. I form a relationship so it's beyond actually this transaction and they believe in me and our business already and it becomes a lot easier to get them involved in the business. So I think that tactical approach to just building relationships and knowing that one day they could lead to something is really important. And I think a lot of founders also undervalue their actual phone book. They've already connected to a lot of people that are dormant and entrepreneurial professionals and maybe just need training with the angel investing school, but can put in 5k into your startup. And cumulatively, if you have even a hundred of those people, suddenly you've closed your round, you know? So I think there's a lot more that can be said to waking up your dormant network and work with people like us to help you and get them to the stage you need to be to make informed decisions on, on investing into your startup. Love that, Andy. Thank you very much. Um, well, we're sadly our final wrap-up question. So first up, this is 40 Minute Mentor. So if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? That's a great question. I would say President Obama. 
I saw him once speak in Berlin and he's probably the most charismatic speaker that I've seen. And he's just overcome certain adversities and done things for the first time, which I think I could learn a lot from in, in trying to do a lot of pioneering things here in the UK and in, in the systems that I'm in. Yeah, that's a, a classic one. I think I'd probably say similar. We've told our Fulton Mental community that this series, we're going to ask a slightly different question. And we've asked a few people, knowing that you're coming on the podcast, and we asked them to send some questions in. So if you don't mind, this is going to be, we're introducing question roulette here. Do you mind picking one, two or three? And we'll give you a wildcard question from our audience. I'll pick number two. Okay, number two, right. What are some of the untapped opportunities or emerging trends that you're looking forward to at the moment? Untapped opportunity, definitely investing into capital efficient consumer businesses. They're often overlooked because they're not venture backable, but actually have great opportunities that underline and, and underline fundamentals from bootstrap founders. Emerging trends that are really interesting is remote workforce, actually, and thinking that Actually, like there's engineers in Nigeria that work for Uber. There's engineers in India that are working for Google. So actually, they're gaining these skills now to go into startup businesses themselves or working in more local startups. So what does that mean for the future of, of entrepreneurship and solving global problems? And I think that's really fascinating. And I need to grow into investing more into emerging market regions. Exciting times. Awesome. Uh, and finally, Andy, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to pass on to our audience? I'll say direction over speed. You know, it's really important sometimes to, especially as an entrepreneur or, or someone that's got goals for their life, to really focus on direction over speed. You know, where I live, I live on the central line and there's like a hundred stops on that tube journey. But I always know that I'll get to my destination if I'm patient and I just wait on that train. If I get off, run around, try and catch other lines, it's just going to take longer. So I think direction over speed is a really important mantra to get people thinking about just prioritizing on, on focusing on the journey ahead and being patient along that journey to achieve what they want to achieve. Very wise words. It's, I've come to expect this from you, Andy. It's an amazing place to end the podcast. Thank you for all the fantastic advice, mentorship, and just sharing your story. I'm really hopeful that everyone that's listening to this is going to get online Google the Angel Investor School and sign up because I think the more people that from all walks of life that take this sort of stuff seriously, the better our broader ecosystem is going to be. And uh, I think you're amazing at what you do. And yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we made this happen. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. No, thank you, James, for just democratizing mentorship in this way, because I get reached out from a lot of people to ask if I could be their mentor. And I can't always say yes, unfortunately, but this gives me a vehicle and a platform to, to share some of those lessons in a really easy to digest way. So I appreciate the platform you've built for all of us. Oh, thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Well, I really hope, hope we'll get to meet up in person soon. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of the year. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. Before we let you go, I wanted to ask a small favour. This year's Great British Podcast Listener's Choice Award is open for nominations and we would really appreciate your vote for 40 Minute Mentor. So if you have a spare minute today, please head over to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and nominate 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for voting for us and we're really looking forward to seeing you again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.